Peter is away and Joe is in Mexico, which is a long way to go and watch the Steelers lose. <laughs> so I hate to be the bearer of bad news this morning, but I'm afraid that it's my sober duty to inform you all that the world is going to end in 2020. It's true. It was predicted by none other than the phenomenal Gene Dixon. We all remember Gene Dixon, right? The psychic who predicted the assassination of JFK and then went on to advise President Nixon and other celebrities. Now, I will admit that she had other failed predictions and she did write an astrology book for dogs. But I'm sure she has this on good authority. Yeah, laugh all you want. But you had better hope that at the dawn of 2020, you find yourself in a state of grace. Might want to reconsider your New Year's Eve plans. Now, it would be really easy for me to stand up here and make jokes about very earnest people who made very incorrect predictions about the end of the world. So I'll just get started then. Uh, my favorite, I think, was Christian radio broadcaster Harold Camping, who first predicted that Judgment Day would come on September 6th, 1994. On September 7th, he wisely revised that date to September 29th, then again to October 2nd, then again to May 21st, 2011. And when that day came and went, he sheepishly suggested maybe late fall sometime, and then he stopped making public appearances. I've been thinking about this all week, and I can't decide which of these five predictions is the gutsiest. I think it's the third one. I think that's the hardest one to make. Now the televangelist Pat Robertson also offered several different dates toward the end of the 20th century. The last one being in the year 2000, which was a popular choice for doomsday preppers, including Jerry Falwell, Sun Myung Moon, uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, Prince, I guess, and the, the left-behind author, Tim LaHaye, who thought that the chaos resulting from the Y2K computer bug would allow the Antichrist to seize power. Now, Archbishop James Usher, who famously used scripture to calculate the date of creation, thought that the world would last for an even 6,000 years and end in 1997. Christopher Columbus thought it would last 7,000 years, but he had to adjust his Judgment Day prediction by one year when he learned that there was no year zero. It's a hard concept. By the way, in case you're curious, the date of creation as calculated by Bishop Usher, and I kid you not, October 22nd, 4004 BC, 6 p.m. That's true. That's true. Happy hour. Now, if you spent your entire 
entire week reading about failed doomsday predictions <laughs> instead of preparing your sermon, you start to recognize a few patterns. See, the turn of the new century and especially a new millennium have always proven popular and have dates with a certain numerological value, like 1666, which was the year of the Great London Fire. As you might expect, natural disasters and, and political crises also tend to be accompanied by a renewed interest in apocalypticism. <coughs> Great wars, plagues, and other catastrophes have long been interpreted by people who lived through them as a sign that God's judgment might finally be coming down upon us. Now, I expected to see predictions from spiritualists and cult leaders, people like Nostradamus or Jim Jones, but I was really surprised by the number of mainstream Christians that got into the game. From Martin Luther to Cotton Mather to numerous intellectuals, philosophers, and more than a few popes. All of which begs the question, why? Why would you put yourself out there like this? Why would you subject yourself to this kind of scorn? I mean, phenomenal or not, Gene Dixon must have known that there have been countless predictions about the end of the world and they've all been wrong. What kind of special arrogance does, you, does a person have to possess in order to think that at long last, I am the one who got it right? Now, I think it's clear that many of these people, if not most of them, are charlatans. You know, the kind of false prophets that Jesus warned us not to follow after. They're doing it for the ego trip or for the fame. They're doing it for money. After all, Harold Camping made millions convincing his listeners that they were living in the last days. But I'm actually less interested in the people who make these predictions than I am in those of us who have believed them. What is the special appeal for us in end-time theology? Do we like imagining that we are significant people living through significant times? Or is there something deeper and more elemental at work here? I think that apocalypticism, this interest in the end of the world, is rooted in a very human desire. And that need is to find order amidst chaos. In the year 1666, which I referenced earlier, the English people were still reeling after multiple wars when a renewed epidemic of the bubonic plague killed 10,000 people and the great fire of London destroyed a major portion of of that city. And I'm sure to many people living through these harrowing times, it must have felt like the end of the world. It's not hard to understand how terrified Londoners might have recalled Jesus' words in today's gospel and become convinced 
that all of this was finally coming to pass. And while you might think that this idea that the world was ending would be even more terrifying than fire and war, I think it's actually strangely comforting to many people. What you have to understand is that these kind of apocalyptic pronouncements aren't really about predicting the future. They're about trying to contextualize the present. Because these terrible events have already happened. We're just trying to find a way to understand what they mean. Doomsday predictions are about re-establishing order in a seemingly chaotic world. Because it's frightening to live in a world in which fire and disease and war can randomly show up and destroy us. But if all those things are actually signs of prophecy being fulfilled, then maybe they're not quite as scary. At least not as existentially frightening. Because no matter what's happening down here, we can take comfort in the knowledge that God is in control. That God is at the driver's seat. Even revenge fantasies like the Left Behind books, I think are rooted in this same need to make sense of a world that seems to be going to hell. Because in an ordered world, suffering has meaning. And justice always prevails. And maybe, if we believe that, through our faith, through prayer, or simply by being prepared, some measure of that sense of control will pass over to us. Which brings us to today's reading from the Gospel of Luke, in which Jesus warns his disciples about all the trials and tribulations that they'll have to endure before his ultimate return. The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, wars between nations and kingdoms, religious persecutions, and other, other signs from heaven. Now at first glance this, glance, this seems to be a story about Jesus predicting future events and doing so rather accurately. Because the temple, in fact, was destroyed by the Romans about 40 years later. And literally, no stone was left on top of another. If you go to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem today, you can still see these stones strewn about the yard below the Wailing Wall. And there was a Jewish insurrection, and nation did rise against nation. And the disciples were put to the sword. But of course, by the time this gospel was written, all of those events had already taken place. Which means that Luke, the writer of this gospel, is not primarily concerned with Jesus' powers of foresight, but with how people of faith should interpret and confront a changing world. Now before you protest, I'm not trying to deny Jesus' 
powers of prognostication here. I think he probably did predict the fall of the temple. But I think that's not primarily what this story is about. Because in the Bible, prophecy is almost never about predicting future events. It's always about contextualizing the present. It's about prophets trying to get a blind people to see what is happening right before their eyes. And after all, I don't worship Jesus because I think he's a gifted seer. I worship him because he is the Son of God who has revealed the path of salvation. And he has taught us how to walk that path. And that's exactly, I think, what he's doing in this passage. Sure, he tells them, the temple is beautiful. But guess what? Temples fall. And bodies are destroyed. And someday this whole thing is going to come crashing down. But there is something inside of you that is greater than all of these things. Something that cannot be destroyed. Something that does not end. So what are you going to do? Knowing what you know now, how are you going to use this time? What time is left to you? Now, if you want to see an example of what it looks like to completely misunderstand Jesus' message here, to be so focused on the future events that you overlook what's happening in the present, all you have to do is look at today's reading from 2 Thessalonians. Because this is a story about people in the church of Thessalonica who have become so convinced that the end of the world was imminent that they had simply stopped doing anything. They stopped working, they stopped contributing to the church, they stopped living out their discipleship. Essentially, they had decided just to drag out the apocalypse. But Paul's like, that's not how discipleship works. This is not a free pass. It's a calling. And it's a calling with an obligation attached. And anyway, Jesus explicitly warned us against trying to predict when the end will come. Because it seems like it won't be for a while. But about that day and that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. This was a verse that poor Harold Camping only remembered, he later said, after his fifth and final prediction. <laughs> It's funny, it almost seems like Jesus tells his disciples that the world is ending, but then undermines the value of possessing that information. The temple will be thrown down, nation will rise against nation, there will be famines and plagues, you will be persecuted. And what exactly can the disciples do about any of this? No amount of prayer, no amount of faith, no amount of preparation will change any of this faith. And while that can sound a little fatalistic, 
I think it's really about asking ourselves, what are we going to do when dark and dangerous days come? Because they inevitably will. Will we despair? Will we fall into idleness like they did in Thessalonica? Will we decide to trust our own devices rather than God? Will we close ranks and turn on one another? Or will we hold fast to our faith, trusting that God is still at work even when all appears to be lost? Will we hold to our faith when dark and dangerous days come? Will we look towards that uncertain future and say, come what may, me and my house, we will worship the Lord.